Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for listening to the ministry of Let the Bible Speak. Today's text is 2 Corinthians 1 verse 11. Ye also helping together by prayer for us. I hope you realize that when you come to a church prayer meeting, you are engaging in serious business. And really before you come through the door, it should be the burden of your heart for God to come and visit us. We don't want to come here in the flesh. We don't want to come here just out of routine and habit. We want to come here with the understanding and the recognition that we're engaged in a very, very serious matter. You see, after all, we are the subjects of Christ the King. And we are met together tonight in a time of serious spiritual conflict. It's always been the case. You think of the Old Testament scriptures. Think of the famous story of Elijah and the conflict with the prophets of Baal. The Lord's people, the remnant, the 7,000 that did not bow the knee to Baal, they're represented by Elijah, and Elijah's coming as a man engaged in conflict. It's always the case. Luther knew all about it. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Conflict. There's always conflict and battle in the work of God. I think of the work not far from us, 100 years ago. Uh, theologian Gresham Machen wrote the book Christianity and Liberalism. The church in conflict, standing for the fundamental truths of the gospel against the advancing raging of the devilish liberal agenda. It's always conflict. The devil is always a conflict with the church. In our day, we find ourselves as a church in the world, seeking the world that is seeking to destroy the very foundations of society. The devil's attacks vary from generation to generation. At present time, you're living with neighbors who are beginning to question the value of life. Both ends of the spectrum. From abortion to euthanasia and assisted suicide, we live in a generation and they're wondering, is life really all that valuable? If all we are is a collection of atoms and molecules, do we really have any lasting significance? Is there any cost with taking a life at its beginning or its end? And before we know it, the middle is well. The foundations of society. You attack the foundations and things crumble. You think of the whole concept of marriage. Foundational to the well-being of society. Now questioned from easy divorce to now the craziness and the confusion of love being loved no matter who you are or who the other party is. These are attacks that are undermining the very foundation of our society. And we must understand that when we come to a prayer meeting, we're engaged in that conflict. Oh yes, please, you can pray for Aunt Mabel's sore knee. That's important. I'm not diminishing that. But we're engaged in conflict here tonight. 
And if you're not prepared to battle, we're in serious trouble. Because the clock will turn round to five or ten after nine, and you'll think to yourself, I'm a little bit tired now. Sure, what harm will it do if I just close my eyes and let my mind drift off for the next 10, 15 minutes? That was very happy. And the people of God not praying, sitting in a meeting but not engaged in the warfare. We must remind ourselves that as we see the world out there and all the desire to destabilize society, we must understand we come in here and we must be at war. But praise God, we find comfort in the warfare, in the experience, and the testimony of the Apostle Paul. We find him in this section, and he's, he's rehearsing again his trials. He, he often does this, uh, verse number 10, well, back to verse number 9, they had the sentence of death in themselves. Uh, they seem to live in that reality. Death. His first imprisonment we have recorded in the book of Acts. Spared death at that time. Uh, you read St. Corinthians later on. In all manner of times he could have lost his life. But God, as he says in verse number 10, God delivered them from so great a death. And doth deliver. And they trust he will deliver again. When Paul reflects on God's deliverance, he understands that the result of that deliverance was that the gospel would be advanced. He does that. Of course, he did do that in Philippians. If I die, I go to be with Christ. But if I live, it's for your benefit. The, the gospel benefits through my life. But God is sovereign. He will take me when he takes me. But he understands there's a connection between the, if you like, the safety of the gospel minister and the advance of the gospel. They're connected. Of course they are. Faith comes by hearing. How can they hear without a preacher? And so Paul understands that connection. And so he rests on the sovereignty of God. He knows, verse number 10, it is God who delivered him. Verse 10 is an awesome statement of the sovereignty of God. Note again the tenses. He hath delivered us, he doth deliver us, and he will deliver us. He understands that God is sovereign in his power. There's none stronger than God's. There's no authority in this world that can take the life of a servant of God without God's permission. If God wills for his servant to live, then no power can take the life of that man. Paul understood that. He understood that God's purpose could not be frustrated. I love the king's words in Daniel. None can stay his hand, hold him back, or say unto him, What doest thou? Paul understood the sovereignty of God. And yet, when he gets to verse 11, he says, He also helping together by prayer for us. Have you ever asked the question, can prayer and God's sovereignty coexist? If God is sovereign, if his will is determined, then why do we pray? Verse 10 clearly says, It is God alone who has done all the work in delivering the Apostle Paul from the death and his colleagues. And yet verse 11 says, He also helping together by prayer for us. He, he has no difficulty in ascribing to the church the credit for their work in prayer. 
at the same time as acknowledging the glorious sovereignty of God. Prayer. In the language of the inspired apostle, is a means whereby God brings about his will. So tonight I want to really just address three sort of questions or areas, serious things that often challenge the Lord's people when it comes to the place of prayer. First of all, why do we bother? I just call it what it is. Why bother? Why bother with prayer? What does it really do? Well, here in this verse, verse 11, Paul tells us that while God delivered him, the church in Corinth, they helped in their prayer. Helping together in the English Bible here, two words, one word in the original, it squeezes together three separate uh, words in the Greek, but one of the words it uses is the word for work. Works. So simple. You working with us by prayer. Your prayer works. Your prayer is productive. Now, in this case, this this text is a little bit difficult to understand in terms of the rest of the text. Ye also helping together or, or, or working unto or working together by prayer for us that the gift bestowed upon us what does, a, what does a prayer do here? Well, the sense is the prayer bestowed a gift. The prayer secured a gift. Now, the gift in view here is implied in the previous verse as the gift of deliverance. That's the gift. It's not a present with bows and wrapping. It's the gift of being delivered from death. He's delivered from death. That's the gift. And Paul is saying that the prayers of God's people directly contributed to that deliverance. Oh, the deliverance is God's act, verse number 10. And yet the deliverance is a gift from God that's been brought about by prayer. Think in very general terms. The deliverance, the gift, was a very personal blessing to the apostle, undoubtedly. But also, as I've said, it is also purposeful for the advance of the gospel. And so I don't think we're stretching the text to say that their prayers were effective under God for the advance of the gospel. God's sovereign will was to spare Paul's life so that Paul would continue to preach, souls be converted, the church be sanctified. He spared Paul's life for that purpose. And then he says, your prayers brought that about. Your prayers worked for the advance of the gospel. It's part of God's purpose for his power to be revealed. God has ordained in his will that prayer be truly effective in obtaining his power. I'm not sure I understand it fully. Not sure how I can put it all together in a, in a logical, intellectual fashion. How that a group of believers in a building like this can pray, and yet that prayer works for the advance of the gospel. That's a credible mystery. How does, how does that all happen? But it does. The Bible says it. I believe it. 
the prayers work. One man puts it this way, and very helpful. It's a, it's a lengthy quotation, just bear with me. He says this, Though the apostle's hope is firmly fixed on God, okay, so he understands the apostles are relying upon the Lord. That's the, that's the point, actually, back in verse number 9, that we should not trust in ourselves. One of the outcomes of the afflictions the apostle was going through was that he would not become self-reliant. So he's firmly fixed on God, yet he continues, yet he also relies on the prayers of fellow believers on his behalf, especially of those to whom, like the Corinthians, his ministry of the gospel had closely linked him. Their supplications play an important role in his expectation of deliverance. Prayer is indeed a mystery, but it is stressed over and over again in the New Testament as a vital prerequisite for the release and experience of God's power. Amen. It's a mystery, but it's in the Bible. It is true that it is God who delivers. And it is true, if I can put it this way, that God stands in no need of human prayers. God doesn't need our prayers. He freely chooses to use our prayers. God can act without prayer. Yet, in the Bible, I'm going to continue the quotation now, there is the manward as well as the Godward aspect of such deliverance. And the manward side is summed up in the duty of Christians to intercede in prayer for their fellow believers who are enduring affliction. Prayer's function and very attitude is precisely to emphasize the utter dependence and resourcefulness of man. In prayer, we show ourselves to be weak. In prayer, human impotence, powerlessness, cast itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. We are impotent. God is omnipotent. We have no power. He has all power. And in prayer, we bring ourselves as powerless before the feet of the God of absolute almighty power. I don't know what you'll pray for tonight. Let's take an example. Let's take this pastor in the Dominican Republic. Take the example you pray for him tonight. You have a burden in your soul to pray for him. Unknown to us. Perhaps that man is a man under attack. And perhaps tonight one of you will mention him in prayer personally, directly tonight. You'll pray for God's strength to be upon that man. Will eternity then reveal your role and your prayer in the protection of that man and the advance of the gospel in the Dominican Republic. It's that concrete, folks, that as we pray directly and personally for ministers and missionaries, for children's workers, for the work of God in general, as we pray for that, God is pleased to use those prayers. Those prayers work, and the gospel is advanced. We've got to pray in faith. And part of the faith that prays those prayers is the conviction that your prayer prayed tonight is indeed effective. It works for the advance of the gospel. Why do we pray? Because it works. Well, secondly, what does prayer do? It works in the sovereignty of God. Well, what does the church prayer meeting do? Is a, is a church prayer meeting really important? Does this matter? Sure, we could all pray at home. Does it really matter that we come here to pray? 
Well, here, again, I think our text addresses that. Verse number 11. Ye also helping together. Just take that word together. Now, it's part of that bigger word, but it is there. It's a small uh, Greek preposition, but it's there. The word together is used. But even leaving aside that word together, nobody says later on that the gift, remember the gift is deliverance. Paul has known the gift of deliverance bestowed upon him by the means of many persons. So that as he reports his deliverance, the prayers of many people, having led to the gift, will then lead to the thanksgiving of many persons. It's all in the plurality, not in the individuality. It's in the recognition of praying together. Now, there are different ideas here of the word together. Some say, does Paul mean they prayed together with him or with other Christians and other churches, all sorts of things? But I think the natural meaning, particularly in the context of the Corinthian letters, is that there was a coming together to pray corporately. If you, in your own spare time, would go back to chapter 11 of the first letter, you will see several times that people are said to come together for the Lord's Supper. They leave their homes. Chapter 14, the wife's a question. She goes home to her husband. She, she heard the word, not at home. She left home, heard the word, and was going back home for her husband. And so, in the whole context, there's an understanding the Corinthians... When they're together, they've left their homes and they've come together somewhere as a corporate body to engage in acts of divine worship, singing, prayer, preaching. You see, togetherness is properly felt in the prayer meeting. Unity. Together. That was the early church in Acts 1. These all continued with one accord in prayer. They met in the upper room And they were in one accord with prayer. I appreciate and I'm so thankful that I know God's people pray in their homes through the week. If this is the only place that you pray, we're also in big trouble. I understand that. So I'm not for a second asking you to substitute your private prayers with corporate prayer. It's not either or, it's both and. But there's something that's tremendously Blessed in coming together as a church to pray. You say, you, you, you go to your home tomorrow morning, you rise up early in the morning, you go to prayer. And you pray for this and that and the other thing. No one knows you're praying for those things. The Lord does praise his name and your reward shall be in heaven. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. But when we come to the corporate prayer meeting, we hear each other pray. We ought to audibly say amen to those prayers. That's something by this missing in many churches. When one of the folks prays tonight, if you agree with that prayer, you should say amen at the end of that prayer. That's in 1 Corinthians. You can say amen. You understand the prayer. You agree with it. You say amen. What does that do? Well, when you hear the amen rippling across, I'm not saying you don't shout it out. It's not because of the loudest you can say. That's not the point. But you, you hear that amen rippling through the congregation. What happens in that context? Well, you all realize I'm not alone. 
We all agree in this church regarding that prayer. We, we pray for the missionary work in, in Kenya or Australia or somewhere else. And as I said, amen, they've all, they've all said amen with me. We, we share the same burden. We have the same hunger for the advance of the gospel. The, the shared faith in the risen Savior that is blood avails for sinners. We share these things. And then when the prayer is answered... And someone says, Lord, thank you for saving a child in our Bible club this week. That's prayed next week. And you can all shout amen. Because you prayed it and you can now share in that thanksgiving. The rippling of agreement as we share our burdens one with the other in the place of prayer. That can only happen in a congregational prayer meeting. It cannot happen in our homes. As important as private prayer is. Spurgeon's got a wonderful book called Only a Prayer Meeting. And he tells an account of one of his prayer meetings in that, in that book. He says this, What a company we have here tonight. It fills my heart with gladness and my eyes with tears of joy. Listen to this. To see so many hundreds of persons gathered together at what is sometimes wickedly described as only a prayer meeting. It is good for us to draw nigh unto God in prayer, and especially good to make up a great congregation for such a purpose. We have attended little prayer meetings of four or five, and we've been glad to be there, for we had the promise of the Lord's presence, but our minds are grieved to see so little attention given to united prayer by many of our churches. We've longed to see great numbers of God's people coming up to pray. And now we enjoy this sight. I trust there are many of God's people and they've longed to see the prayer meeting filled. And that perhaps in God's grace there'll be a time that you'll share Spurgeon's delight and joy to see the many hundreds gathered together in the place of prayer. Spurgeon says this, How could we expect a blessing if we were too idle to ask for it? How can we look for a Pentecost if we never met with one accord in one place to wait upon the Lord? Brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. What does prayer do? It works. What does the church prayer meeting do? It brings the church together in unity. Thirdly, what do I do? What can I really do for the Lord? The church we understand to be one body with various parts and various gifts. And yet there are so many of God's people and they think to themselves, I don't think I can do anything for the Lord. They're so painfully aware of what they perceive to be their lack of gifts. And this thought really only came to me this morning, so I think it's right. But if somebody wants to correct me later on, I'll be glad to have a conversation about it. But let, let me run with it for tonight. I don't think that prayer is ever explicitly lifted as a gift in the church. Tongues, yeah, it's a gift. That's a unique form of prayer in the early church, limited in time. I don't think the general gift of prayer is listed as a gift in terms of the church fellowship. You take 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're near there, 1 Corinthians 12... God has set some, and again, in the context of one body, many members. 
God has set some in the church, first apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healings, helps, governments, diversity of tongues. The point being there are various gifts in the church. They're not all the same, various gifts. In a similar fashion across in Romans chapter 12, you'll see a similar list. Again, in the context of the body being one body with various members, verse 4, many members, one body. What are the gifts that are mentioned? Well, according to grace, there's prophecy, verse 6, ministry, teaching, exhorting, ruling, showing mercy, giving, all of those different gifts. No mention of prayer. Could it be the case? Again, I'm treading tentatively here. I'm not asking for dogmatism. But could it be the case that the reason that prayer is not explicitly mentioned as a gift belonging to certain individuals in the church is because every single believer is given the gift to pray? Could that be it? Could that be the point? Could that be the significance? Paul is converted. Ananias trembles, and he's reassured by the words, Behold, he prayeth. Prayer is a fundamental evidence of saving faith. Preaching's not. You can be a believer and not a preacher. You can be a believer and not have the various gifts that are mentioned in these things. But you cannot be a believer and not be able to pray. And so there are some when they say to themselves, What can I do for God? All, all I can do is pray. What a wonderful all that is. Again, let me close and borrow from Spurgeon. He says this, There are some of you who cannot do anything in the way of preaching. I do not want that you should try. And he continues, And there are other agencies to which you could not put your hand. To you especially, I may say, you also helping together by your prayers for us. Here is a way in which you can really help. Substantially help, wonderfully help. And this you can do even if you should become bedridden. You could even then lie still and invoke a blessing for God upon our ministry. You can only pray. Ah, oh, but you can pray. God is sovereign in the advance and the protection of his church. But in his kindness, he has ordained prayer to encourage our humility in recognition of our humanity as we look to the heavenly and the power of God be poured out upon his church. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.